So uh, we have a special treat today that uh, we, we're having a guest speaker uh, who uh, is here today uh, to uh, preach from the, the text that you just heard. And though he was given a topic uh, initially considering uh, this month of February on singleness, um, our speaker, Louis Clark, uh, is someone who is a disciple maker uh, with his special focus being among unreached people groups. Uh, he has pastoral experience in large churches, uh, small churches, church planting, uh, even working in higher education, and he spent his life learning to love others well. So Louis's heart is to see the next generation follow Jesus, and uh, he's currently living and ministering in Chicago. So uh, please give a warm welcome to our speaker, Louis Clark. Thank you. I am 62 years old. I have never been married. I uh, have spoken on singleness twice. And uh, I was asked to do that, and I'm glad to do it. And um, a few years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. And um, Ryan Seibert, who has been with me in ministry for the last uh, 15 years, 20 years, uh, he went with me to the hospital, and I got the diagnosis, and all the oxygen was sucked out of the room, and there was a park bench outside the hospital. We just sat down. I cried, and um, at that point, what was important to me was who loved me and who I loved. You know, it just, cancer just cuts the chase of everything that you think, everything you value. And um, so I went to Northwestern Medical Center, had surgery, woke up the next morning. I felt like a truck had hit me, you know, and I'm laying there, and the doctor and assistant came in, and uh, Dr. Nadler walked up to the bed, didn't even ask how I was doing, and he said, who are you? You know, and I'm thinking, okay, you just spent eight hours with me in an operating room, and you're asking me who I am. And I, I said, I'm Lewis Clark. And he said, no, no, no. He goes to his assistant. He said, I walked into the waiting room last night and asked for the Clark family after surgery. And this whole group of people stood up. And there was old people. There was black people. There was Asian people. And I'm going, what is this? So he looked back at me and he goes, who are you? You know, at that moment, I knew I belonged. I had someone to belong to, and they belonged to me. This is a picture of to whom I belong presently. And my brother-in-law is Nigerian, and he was a Muslim background believer, and he came to faith through reading the Chronicles of Narnia. He had heard the gospel, didn't understand it, read the Chronicles of Narnia, and he got it. And he has raised his children differently than most Americans. And I told him, I said, Sanusi, I don't get it. I know I don't get it. Help me get it. And he says, okay, Louie, in order for my sons to connect to their children and to their grandchildren, I need to connect them to their grandparents and to their great-grandparents. For the Jewish people, it's connecting them back six generations. Uh, on the north side, young kids, 
and old people and in between. And this next slide is uh, us with the sukkah, which is the tabernacle of booths, tabernacle of trumpets. And one of the things we do in, in the, the Rabbi Ed sitting there, Rabbi Ed leads us, is we go back generations of our grandparents and who they were, our parents and our grandparents, to help us again know to whom do I belong. Belonging has been defined is to be bound to others by ties of affection, dependence, and allegiance. To embrace the gospel is to enter into community. You cannot have one without the other. To follow Jesus is to be in community, is to belong. At the baptism of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, it says, A voice came from heaven and said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. And he repeats that later at the Mount Transfiguration. This is my Son, whom I love, whom I am pleased. What do we see? Family? God is familial? Um, you are my brother, you are my sister. What this is here is not an organization. This is the family of God. It's not a metaphor. That's what it is, family. And how I interact with you is as my brother and as my sister. And how dare I view any less than the Heavenly Father views you. You are the apple of the Father's eye. I had better treat you accordingly. Um, in the picture, you saw a bunch of kids. Ryan and Josie Seibert, I love Ryan and Josie. So do you know how I love them? By loving their kids. I always got snack Lunchables in my refrigerator to give to Cohen and to give to Juniper because I want Ryan and Josie to know I love you. So it's familial. It is love. This is my son whom I love. God is love. John writes, he who lives in love lives in God and God in him. It is all about love. And listen to me carefully. Go check this out. Not one Christian creed uses the word love. Not one of them. And yet if God is love, and is not the gospel love, how can that not be in our creeds? How can that not be in our DNA? And then this is my son who I'm proud of. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. It is affection. Our God is love and he is affectionate. Now, I don't know what kind of God you've got conjured up. I don't know what kind of God you were raised with. Our lens of theology, our lens of tradition are thick. So we see things in the Bible that are not there, but it also blinds us to things in the Bible that are there. And the God of heaven, one time, God comes on earth in the form of Jesus, okay? We get to see what God is like in the world we live. 
And what does he do? He forms a community of people, 12 guys, lives with them for three years, and at the end of that time, what does he say to them? As the Father has loved me for all eternity, you heard him at the baptism, that for a true follower of Jesus is that you love one another. Doesn't say love theology, doesn't say love God, doesn't say love the church. The mark that you follow Jesus is your love for one another. As a matter of fact, John goes on to write in 1 John 4, if a man says he loves God but hates his brother, he is a liar. You cannot do it. You cannot separate your relationship with God from your relationship with people. How can you say you love God who you cannot see when you don't love men who you do see? And so for you and I to be God-bearers on earth, to be like Jesus on earth, the mark of our life is love. That was all introduction, all right? Um, <clears throat> the first point is this. About singles were the leaders of the advancement of God in the first century. All right? And this whole new movement of love, of, of um, you know, here's the question we ask in West Rogers Park. When Jesus said to the twelve, go in the world and make disciples, what came into their head when they heard that? If we could find Thaddeus five years later, if we could find Bartholomew five years later, what was he doing? So to ask the question, if God moved into Roger's part, no, no, if one of the twelve disciples, Thaddeus or Bartholomew, moved into West Roger's Park, what would they do? What would it look like? And part of what in the first century, the expansion of this kingdom, it was entrusted to singles. In uh, Acts chapter 11, um, Barnabas, who was single, had been in Antioch. He had met Saul five years earlier. He went and found him 300 miles. It says here that Barnabas went to Tar Tarsus and looked for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great numbers of, number of people. It is the pursuit. Disciple-making is a pursuit. Barnabas pursued Saul, later, who later became the apostle Paul. Paul comes across to Timothy and goes, you're coming with me. Come on, buddy. And isn't that what Jesus did? He saw Andrew. He saw Matthew. He saw John. Come, come with me. It's the pursuit. And then later in chapter 13 of Acts, while they were still worshiping, okay, this is the church at Antioch, um, while they were still worshiping the, with the Lord with fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, these are singles. Singles who were entrusted with the expansion of the kingdom of God. Okay? It's a team. Okay, as a, those of you who are single, don't ever operate outside of a team. Jesus trained his men in a team, sent them out in twos. I think it was unthinkable for Paul to have been doing ministry without being on a team. T 
Titus was with him for 20 years. Timothy and Luke were with him for 18 years. I was never taught that. It wasn't until 20 years ago when Ryan Seibert joined me, and then we've been together here for 15 years in Chicago. He's the first one. Why didn't I think of doing that 40 years ago? No one told me to do it. We were lone rangers. Yeah. So I've done research on a book on singleness for the last three years, and uh, it'll be coming out this year. And so I interviewed singles who were innovations I want to make. The first who, the ability to take a chance that involves peril. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, we were in great endurance, in trouble, in hardship, distresses, beatings, imprisonment, riots. Okay, that's, I think that all categorizes is, is risk. Okay, in 2 Corinthians 11, I was flogged, I was um, pelted with rocks, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, spent a night and day on the open sea, dangers from rivers, danger from badness, you get the picture, risk. The expansion of the kingdom of God requires risk. Risk is a mandatory component in kingdom thinking. If nothing else, love, if you are going to love, you are going to risk. Singles can take risk. As evangelism seeks to fix the single problem, they're actually destroying the very thing that singles are good at and the purpose for singles in the kingdom of God. Again, I don't know how long you will be single. Some of you, maybe five more months, maybe it'll be three years, maybe it'll be 50 years. I don't know. But as long as you are single, the purpose is to be on the cutting edge of the expansion of the kingdom of God in love and taking the risk of love. The difference between singles and families, okay? Singles can take risks, and singles are mobile. Families are risk-averse and immobile. Eighty, about 85% of our missionary force are married couples with kids. Okay, our family's a bad thing. I did not say that. As a matter of fact, our ministry, children are a key value to all we do. If children get in the way of your ministry model, the children are not the problem. We begin with our children in mind. Okay? So I'm not anti-family. But when it comes to risk, when it comes to mobility, that is up to the single to do that. I interviewed a guy uh, who is in Afghanistan and he goes, Louie, he's single. I'm not, I have a hard time working with the mission organizations because they spend more time on exit strategies and safety and security than they do on the gospel. He goes, if I die, I die. Since when has death and risk been separated from the gospel? I have settled that a long time ago. When we have evacuations, I stay right here with the Afghan people. And if I perish, I perish. Because God has called me to this people group.
Okay. So as a single, we can take risk and we, um, we're mobile. Now mobility has been defined as be able to move quickly and easily. In, in Acts 16, uh, during the night in verse 9, Paul had a vision from a man of Macedonia and said, come over and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got up, Paul, Peter, Luke writes, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. They could get up and move because they were mobile. They could do it. And part of the beauty of being single, okay, I have never owned my own home. Even when I was pastoring, okay, large congregation, I didn't own my own home. Why would I want to own a house? It would just tie me down. And isn't that Paul's mindset? Take wives along with us. Uh, C is the cost involved. It's just a lot cheaper to send singles overseas. And even in a place like Chicago, if we had single men and women making disciples as they did in the first century, now, you know, I spoke at a church planning conference, and... um, I said, you know, we're people who are committed to the Word of God. You know, you know, pastors say, amen, yep, 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 you know. And no one should know about church playing more than we do. That's what we're paid to do. And the only model I know about with church planning is married couples with kids moving to a city and saying, we're going to be the pastor here for the next 30 years. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying we should stop doing it. But show me one example of that from the Bible. But what do you have are single teams coming in, making disciples, establishing the church, moving on to the next city. Okay, Timothy, pack your bag. We're leaving tomorrow. And they go on to the next city. And they, they're, Paul, his whole life, was mobile, moving on. That's our biblical example. Um, capacity, singles have... Uh, with time, energy, and brain space, they have the capacity and facility and power to produce and perform and deploy. In the research, single women on the mission field just tore up Jack. They outperformed their married teammates in establishing churches and disciples, and that's not why they were there. They were there as nurses and school teachers and social workers but they had extra time on their hands. And so one of the ladies I interviewed, she started churches in a barrio because she could. She had the, the bandwidth to do it. The second point in the first century is not only did singles lead the expansion, they were the role model. A role model is a person looked to by others as an example to be imitated. Um, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I taught in every church. In, In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul writes, I lived among you for your sake. Okay, I don't know about you, but all the churches I grew up in, I couldn't imitate the pastor because I never saw the pastor. I saw him in the pulpit up there on Sunday mornings. Then, got my theology degree, went and worked on church staffs, and guess what? I still couldn't imitate the pastors. 
I would see them in their offices. Rarely did I see the other pastors with their wives. Rarely did I see them with their wives and kids, let alone imitate how they lived out their life. So one of the reasons I have gone from pastoring churches to living in a building with 13 other people is so that people can imitate my life. You know, when I, when I was 42 years old, I lived in an apartment. I didn't know how to cook. So I didn't eat. I ate out all the time. My stove was literally, my oven was filled with books because that was a good storage spot, you know. Because I never used this stupid thing, you know. Um, and um, I, 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 you know, my home was where I slept and that was it. So I was teaching through Titus and um, one of the qualifications for an elder is what? Hospitality. It's a real short list of what it means to qualify to lead a spiritual family, the church. And one of those is hospitality. I looked to my right and left, and I'm going, okay, there's nine of us pastors. I had never had any of them in my home here. i got to study this out. So um, hospitality goes from Genesis to Revelation. It's there the whole way, the life of Jesus. So when Ryan and I moved here, we determined that hospitality was the means by which we do ministry. That meant I had to learn how to cook. Honestly, I had no more idea how to boil an egg, bake a potato, cook pasta. Nothing came up on my screen. I had to learn from scratch how to cook. And today we have over 400 guests that stay with us every year in our apartments. And we have hundreds of dinner guests. The point of power of our ministry is our dining room table. Those discussions. And I believe with all my heart we're having a greater impact around that dinner table than, I was, than when I was speaking in front of hundreds of people every week. The means of ministry for you as a single in Chicago will be hospitality. Are you going to have to change? Yep. Did I have to change? Yep. So, singles being a role model, Paul was a role model, Timothy was a role model, and listen to this in uh, 1 Timothy 4.12. Paul said to him, don't look down on any of them because you're young. I don't care that if you're a young single sitting here. Okay, it doesn't matter your age. Paul says, but set an example for all the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. You, as a single follower of Jesus, need to be an example of what love looks like, what friendship looks like. But for many of us, we struggle with friendship. We struggle with relationship. We struggle with love. And we think, you know, I am probably the best friend in the world anybody could have. What is wrong with all these idiots? You know? And I'm going, no, especially if you were raised here in America, we were raised to be rugged individualists. We're not good at friendship. The collective, we've been raised our whole life to think as an individualist. So even when we present the gospel to people, it's individualistically. 
And for those who grew up in a collective like Sanusi, my brother-in-law says, I don't think I've ever had an individualistic thought in my life. And he says, when you present the gospel, you might as well be on AM and I'm on FM because you don't understand how the collective mind works, how the belonging mind works. Uh, Titus was a role model. Also, the whole team was a role model. I'm moving on quickly. Let me get, because I'm taking too long here. Point number three is I want to talk about the singles and bias in evangelicalism and culture. Bittner writes this, the politics of difference rests on two basic persuasions. The identity of a person is inescapably marked by the particularities of the social setting which he or she is born and develops. In identifying with parental figures, peer groups, teachers, religious authorities, community figures, one does not identify with them simply as human beings, but also with their investment in a particular language, religion, customs, and their construction of gender and racial difference. Your lens has been formed. Okay, I didn't choose who were going to be my parents. I didn't choose where I was going to be raised. I didn't choose the church I was going to be raised in or what schools I went to. And those lenses look in the mirror for self-reflection. What do you do? You're looking at through your lens. So your self-evaluation, even that, is tainted. And then we go to the Word of God, and it, we see things that are not there. We're blinded to the things that are. And I understand there's several different cultures represented in this room, and each one of us has cultural lens like that. And part of it with singleness in the American culture is we, know have, we have no rite of passage to adulthood. So by default, it's marriage. So if you're not married, you are considered a non-adult. And in some cultures, you know, it's just assumed that marriage is part of your future. And it is a shame to be single. And for, for many of us, that is the issue, is we feel shame. Because people put a question mark behind their name, or what's wrong with him that he's still single? Or what's wrong with her that she's still single? And even though you're single, you do that to other singles. Um, Taylor goes, writes on, second, since the identity is partly shaped by recognition we received from the social studies in which we live, non-recognition or misrecognition can inflict harm, can, can be a form of oppression imprisoning someone else in a false, distorted, and reduced mode of being. Because of where you've grown up, because of social media, you are a distortion of who you should be. Um, you have been oppressed. Where we get our identity the, as followers of Jesus is that we are kingdom singles. We are children of God. And it is there... And we have several passages, 1 Corinthians 
uh, seven being one of those, of what is God's view of singleness. Now, the best interview I did was with a 92-year-old single man who was one of the original um, management culture consultants back in the 1940s, okay? Um, and he was back there with Peter Drucker and all those guys when it was first developing. And um, he said, you know, one of the things about singleness, Louis, he says, first of all, my problem isn't with the churches and their oppression of singles. My problem is with the singles because the singles need to step up and live the God-risk life that they were meant to be. And he says, people ask me sometimes, well, Dr. Crook, what do people think about you, you know, being single? You know, they're putting a question mark. He goes, since when do we as followers of Jesus care about what anybody thinks about us? We should care alone about what Jesus thinks about us. We are fools for the gospel. They're going to think you're a fool anyway. So you're a single and you're celibate? The worst thing you could do is to get married just to prove that you're not gay. Okay? Or just to try and prove, yeah, I'm normal. Look, I have a girl on my arm. Or I have a guy on my arm. Terrible reason to get married. Now, the, the non-recognition piece here has been defined as a refusal to acknowledge the existence, vitality, legality of something. Uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Martha Strickland from Penn State, she says, singles are invisible. Singles are invisible to the church, and the singles outside the church are invisible to the church. Nowhere else in society may be single, your teacher may be single, who cares? But in, within the church, we don't know quite what to do with the single. The mindset is, oh, we have children's ministry, and then you go to youth ministry, and then you go to college ministry, and then we have a little singles ministry, and then you get married, and you'll have happy ever after. Most singles drop out of church by the age 40 because they just give up. Say, I'm never going to fit there. Yeah. The more concerning thing is misrecognition. Misrecognition is the deliberate marginalization of singles by discrediting of singleness. Often it's indirect and indis, um, kind of insinuated, but it's the question mark we put behind singles' names by the singles' life. And um, I've listed, a, I'll go through these real quickly, some misrecognitions of singles. Singles tend to be strange. Okay. I sat across from a denominational leader who said to me, Louis, you have to admit that older singles especially are strange. And I'm saying, okay, first of all, I'm older. Secondly, I'm single. So are you saying I'm strange? And the funny part is, this guy was strange and he was married. It's the, the, have you not met strange married people? Some of the strangest people I know are married. So it's not as if, oh, okay, I'm strange. I'm going to de-strange myself by getting married. No. Um, number two is sexuals are sexual, sexually prom promiscuous. I don't know. Why is he still single? Or why is she still single? As true as I'm standing here. I was in a meeting 
with a mission organization that was sending a team to Brazil, and they weren't going to send single missionaries because it's such a sexually charged place. So I said, can I ask a question? I said, so you're telling me that singles struggle more with sexual temptation than married people? Well, you know, that's how he answered me. I said, secondly, don't you think you're also raising the risk a little bit? You have one single, but then couldn't it be the wife who may be tempted? Or what about the children of the missionary? I've been in ministry 40 years most of the sexual scandals in ministry I know about have been with married people. The mark of a kingdom single is sexual purity. Is choosing to be celibate. And that was a hard message in the first century. Do you know what met Paul's environment that he was proclaiming this in? I don't think it was any more difficult then than it is today or today than it is then. But to follow Jesus as a single is to keep yourself sexually pure. You are to have sex with one person, your future wife or your future husband. Um, Number three, singles are incomplete. I, I love telling my friend who's he was widowed at 40 years old and uh, he's a widower and left with four children and he says my message to the church is this stop feeling sorry for me when you feel sorry for me you're telling me that I'm less than and for you who are single you need to stop feeling sorry for yourself because when you feel sorry for yourself about being single, you're feeling less than. Number four is single. Marriage does not guarantee contentment. Some of the most lonely people I know are married. If you think marriage is going to fill that hole for you, you are a fool. Your completion needs to come in Jesus as a whole person, as a single, then you'll make a great husband, a great wife. And by the way, I'm not, I think most of you probably should be married and will be married. But the problem is the disillusion we have about marriage. Number five, singles tend to be fickle and irresponsible. In reality, they're adventuresome. They don't want to be tied down. That's a good thing. Have you not met immature married people? One of the women I interviewed was in a Bible study of women at her church, and one of the other uh, ladies in the group announced that she got engaged that week. And everyone was excited and clapping. And the teacher said, I'm proud of you that you've made the mature decision. So I think that made her feel as a single sitting there. Singles limit ministry opportunities. In reality, that's a falsehood. Singleness gives you more opportunities. Uh, Singleness inhibits ministry effectiveness. Argue that with the Apostle Paul. 
Uh, misconception number eight, God is withholding blessing from that single. Okay, now, here's my friend. He goes, look at my wife. Isn't she hot? God is so good to me. Gave me this wonderful wife, and we got four beautiful children. God is great. God is so good to me. And I say, you know what? You're right. God is good to you. I'm grateful that you have a wonderful wife. I'm glad you've got those kids. But guess what? God is as good to me. He has blessed me. I have no wife. I have no physical kids, as far as I know. Just kidding. I don't. Okay. Um, but God is not more or less. And, and here's, here's the thing you need to know about your father's love for you. Because singles say things to me like, I don't want to die alone. How in the world do you have any control over that? How do you know that your wife is not going to die before you? Or your husband before you? You may be taking care of her. Like, for example, who's going to take care of me in old age? Well, you have no guarantee that your wife will live longer than you or your husband longer than you. Again, what a horrible reason to get married just you know, to make sure that I'm taking care of an old age. Here is the truth of the matter is the only thing I can promise you is your Heavenly Father who is aware of the birds who live and die, he's counted the hair of your heads, he has promised to take care of you till the end. Okay? That is your security, not your future mate. Um, let me close with uh, 1 Corinthians 2, what we read earlier, a condensed version. In verse 17, okay, if, if you haven't picked this up yet, the beginning of this thing is about love, the middle part is about love, and I'm going to end here with love. Okay, your singleness is all about love because God is love. And singleness, who wrote 1 Corinthians 13? A single. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13 is the greatest um, writing on love probably in the history of man. And what? He's the single guy. Okay? So he writes, but brothers and sisters... We were orphaned by being separated you from a short time, in person, not in thought. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Okay, who is that true of in your life? When, when you're not with them, you feel orphaned. As a single, who is that community? Who are those brothers and sisters? Okay, this is normative for followers of Jesus. And if it's not true in your life, you need to make the adjustments to get into the normative of what it means to be in community, to be in family, to belong. Okay? He goes on to say in verse 19, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. The context, Olympics, they would put crowns on the head of the winner made out of olive leaf. Okay, we have the medallion. Put them on the head, you know, the Olympic medallion. So what Paul's saying is, 
When we stand before Jesus someday and I got my medallion, my gold medal, and I'm holding it up and going, look at this, okay? What is that medallion? It's you. You, you people, my friends in Thessalonica, it is you. What is our joy? What is my heart's going to pound out of my chest out of excitement and pride when we stand before Jesus? It's you. So two questions. Who has ever said that to you? About you? For most of us, nobody. That's how messed up Christianity is. And we're going back to the Heavenly Father says, this is my son whom I love and what? And whom I am well pleased. The people in your spiritual community who you've chosen to live life with, you need to make sure you tell them that you love them and you need to tell them, I'm proud of you and I want you to know the joy that you bring to me. He goes on and he says, Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Okay, the first time I read this, how long did it take me to get on the telephone to Croatia to talk to Tim Barry, who went there right after the war, the Bosnian War, and said, Tim, I am so proud of you and what you're doing. You know? Jeremy Quigley to saying the, men, the number of men your lives has touched. I'm proud of you. Danny Jones went to Slovakia after the fall of communism and I have, I have met grandkids, great spiritual grandkids and great grandkids throughout all of Eastern Europe because Danny went there and made disciples of Jesus. Um, and I said, Danny, I just want you to know I'm proud of you. And um, who have you done that for? I mean, who in this world would say, if there's one person I know believes in me, and they would name you? I have one big cheerleader, and this is who it is, and they would name you. That's what it is to be an image bearer of God on earth. That is why you are single. That is why you're in Chicago. The means of ministry is going to be your hospitality, engaging this culture. It's going to be your love for one another, the risk to love and to love well. Spirit of God, as you empowered our brothers and sisters in the first century, we desperately need you to empower us now. We're in a very dark city, in a dark place, and um, we need you to um, do as you did for them. You know, here with Paul and Timothy and Titus and Luke, and, and that we would just love well as Jesus did and they did. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.